are about to start episode three. Uh, this episode, we got myself, Brandon, and Gabby. So a partner episode should be fun. Uh, a lot of lot of things have happened in the past two weeks. So we're going to hit a lot of uh, topics and we'll start with uh, where we ended, which was on Twitter. Uh, but now we're talking about Twitter rebranding to X and would love to just start with any general thoughts you guys think, just given how important Twitter is to uh, the ACP team. Yeah, Twitter is really big for us. I think what is probably our biggest platform. I mean, I know a lot of people are doing stuff on LinkedIn, you know, on Reason. Actually, Gabby, too. You guys are the LinkedIn, LinkedIn killers out there. But I think from a Twitter perspective, the way I'll think about it, you guys might go a little deeper in a different direction. It's cool to see Elon build in public. When you think about like Mark or Jeff or any of the other big folks that run like Fang stocks or big companies, no one's actually just like doing it in public and changing things. And when it doesn't work, just kind of like throwing it away. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. And then I was listening to a recent podcast with Mark Zuckerberg, and he mentioned that when Elon came in and basically cut all the staff and was still kind of like breaking things and moving really fast with such a big organization, it did let him know that he can do the same thing, which probably led to him doing threads with 20 people, secret project coming out, things of that nature. So I think overall, is it the best way to do it? Probably not. But is it the fastest way it is? And is it actually changing the way that a lot of people run companies? Yes. And you got to remember, this is probably like his six. This is like six on his list of importance. And he's still doing better than a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, maybe six on it. But it, uh, I guess it feels like the most publicly important. I feel like it's the know? most important yeah. to me. Yeah, like I think it's, it's the most important. Maybe, like, really? Most important to like. You really think that this is bitter, bigger than Tesla for him? Like, I think it is. I think to his, he, I think to personal ego, to like, to like personal this. ego, to like the you know audience of like now. I guess it's not going to be followers. It's going to be viewers, right? Like in the new branding that he like wants to cultivate. Like, I don't know. There's like a cult like saying not in the, the most negative way that he's kind of building. So I think it like takes on renewed importance. I think like Tesla, SpaceX, those have kind of like sailed and like in a way are just kind of growing on their own. Like this is the one that he has to keep molding and shaping kind of at that early stage because it's, you know, still being figured out. I feel like for me, I I mean, RIP to Twitter, RIP to like what it used to be. And I think you have to rebrand if you're going to be able to create and build anything new. Like all of the things from a vision perspective they want to do around like micropayments and, you know, being this one all in app, like you couldn't have done it under the the old Twitter in some ways. And so I think that evolution has to happen, but I don't say I, I love it personally. Like I've been seeing all the funny uh, clips online of people like changing their X logo back to the Twitter logo, making it pink for Barbie, like doing all kinds of stuff. So like people still have this like excitement for the old brand. Um, but I'm curious to see like what new things kind of come out of it. Yeah, I mean, he was so excited when he passed Obama for the most followers on Twitter. And I think that like kind of just represents like this is his like microphone. And I do like Gabby's analysis of like Tesla and, and SpaceX, they have tons of product managers and GMs who can run that business. Like this is his idea, particularly because he fired half the staff. So like he has to be the one. So I do think this is the next. I think, you know, I watched the interview recently about him doing a super app, which to me is like a weird transition. Like, how do you go from this? 180 characters he want to be the largest you know financial platform globally it's it's weird maybe that's like elon but i don't i don't kind of get the transition 
on where you kind of think that this user base that you have, which is now apparently 545 million, which is the most Twitter's ever had and kind of combats the, you know, what people are saying that people are leaving Twitter and going to threads. But still, I don't think that user came to that platform for it to be the DoorDash or Uber Eats, which already do like a lot of things and like do that now for another layer. So I'm personally a little confused on like why he thought that this consumer base was the best place for him to make that transition. Even though you have the platform, you have a half a billion followers, like Zuckerberg's got 2 billion, you know, on his platform as he's not making that transition. So I don't think that's what users want from that company. So I think it's a stretch. I actually just thought about something from some of the things you guys mentioned. This might be like the Musical.ly TikTok moment. I'm not sure if people remember Musical.ly at all. <laughs> a lot of us probably don't remember Another startup it. graveyard. New, right. And then you're like, oh, Musical.ly gets acquired. And then it gets turned into this thing called TikTok. And everyone's like, it's still the same thing. And then like four or five years later, it's like the most powerful, potentially the most powerful app uh, tracking a lot of Americans. And I, I assume that Elon is betting that, hey, if TikTok, which is, you know, a Chinese owned company, can become a potential super app where they're doing live shopping, they're doing streaming, they're doing all these big things. Why can't I do that when I could just put all the money behind it, my personal self? And TikTok doesn't have a face, if you will, of the brand. I mean, obviously Facebook and and Instagram have a face, but not everyone likes Mark Zuckerberg. Apparently, everyone loves Elon. <laughs> really? I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, don't yeah, know I was like, like, Elon's definitely more hated than Zuckerberg. In my I opinion agree. Now. I think he's got like. Well, I would have said it. Really? I would have said it was Zuckerberg before, but I think now I think Elon has got a lot more hate than he. I had think before. Elon has like his super fans, but I'd say the vast majority are not fans, especially in the last two years. Like, if you'd kind of gone back to like just SpaceX and Tesla, like yes, doing like something net different, net positive in the world. And I think in the last year, a lot of the changes to Twitter, whether it's around content moderation or just like kind of changing rules to suit, you know, his own whim. It's like, yeah, I would not say beloved in any way. And he wasn't nearly as like politically focused before, right? Like he's clearly in the anti-woke camp. And I think that's like really, and I mean, a big reason why he bought Twitter is because he said it was too liberal. Right. And so like, I think he's never really pushed his political views as much as he has the past two years. I think now like you're really starting to see this divide and it's becoming more political versus like, hey, I'm just like this genius. And I have all these companies. Now he's taking that stance, which, you know, once you get to that point, you can't take that stance and care less about what people think about you. Right. So he has that, that right to do that. But I think it has made him a much more divisive leader because he's taking a stance. And he's pushing that within his company's culture, you know, particularly at like Twitter in terms of like, constant moderation like hey i want this to be less liberal and like that's what he's speaking i want more anti-woke so i would i would say he's more hated my opinion than zuckerberg now well the reason why i was saying that he's more love i mean mark zuckerberg doesn't have super fans right like no other ceo like jamie diamond has super fans maybe but like there's not many ceos who have super fans in general and i would probably say especially not at tesla and SpaceX are like having these like breakthrough moments. There's probably more super fans of those companies than there were five. I can I could agree with that. I could agree that Elon probably has more super fans than Zuck. And so maybe that's where I was going. Like he's getting there's more super fans than yesterday. <laughs> but yes, there are also more people who hate him probably <laughs> than yesterday. Like it's equal opposite. I don't know. I don't know. How, yeah, I don't know how to net that out. I mean, but where I where does the score more, balance I out? But I I kind of want to go back to your point, Brandon, around like. Because he took the company private, he has the opportunity to break things, build in public in a way that like 
Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft can never do because of the, you know, it'll impact their share price and, you know, what shareholders think. So I think- And who could buy them? And who could buy, well, you know, at that point. Trillion dollars the U.S. government? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, we've got too much debt. Too big to fail. Too much debt. But um, I think that is, you know, it's a grand experiment in many ways. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think the beauty of him being able to take it public is he can, you know, create and do something very different, um, even if, like, we don't end up loving it. Well, let's do a prediction. I like on podcasts where they, <laughs> where everyone's actually split, if you will, or at least someone on the podcast is split and you want to make a prediction. So what should the prediction be? Like, should it be like, does X hit a billion users or something like that? And when does it hit a billion users if it was going to do so? Or For me, it would be does Elon... Does Elon sell the business for more than forty-four billion dollars mm-hmm. at any point? Like, it's ultimately like he made an investment, and so I think the biggest. I think people, he IPOs before he sells. My opinion. Well, does he IPO for more than forty-four billion? Uh, oh, yeah. That I'm is selling. Yes. I'm taking. I'll yes. take the other side. I think it could IPO. It'll sustain, but not forty-four billion. Yeah, I, 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 my, like- I think it's like a twenty-six to thirty thirty-five <laughs> billion dollar business if he can get it right. Y'all, I'm telling from a very big Tesla bag holder, do not bet against Elon Musk. I cannot wait to buy that stock, and I will hold on to it and give it to my children. All right, all right, next stock. You're like my, you're like my tennis coach. She never sells Tesla no matter what. You can't. Clearly, clearly you're a super fan. And then all. Well, yes. Um, you know, I have to say I do own a Tesla. I do have Tesla insurance. I do own Tesla stock. But my stock has split twice already. <laughs> it's went to 2000. I, I don't tell the stock twice. too. I'm, it, it, it's, so, it's, not, know, it's up a lot this solid. year. Yep. We're doing all right. It's up a lot this year. <laughs> um, okay. So switching other sides from what I would say was okay marketing switch for Twitter to X to now incredible marketing, probably one of the best marketing campaigns in movie history, uh, Barbie. So I don't know if you guys have seen Barbie. My wife forced me to see it our birthday weekend. Uh, but like, what are your guys' thoughts on like the Barbie marketing strategy? I kind of feel like it, it would be a Harvard business case study at some point just because it was so well executed. I think it has to be. I think uh, probably the best, most full surround, like for it to be touching Lockheed Martin to like in person to everything in online culture. Um, I think it's like they've almost willed it to become a movement by the sheer like power of the marketing and like you know, the actors and sort of like the surround of the movie itself, like you couldn't prop up a bad movie, but let's, it's a great film and they were able to, you know, add everything around it. So I think that's pretty incredible. I have a few points here. I think this is real guerrilla marketing, like shaking hands, kissing babies, hand in hand combat. I feel like the last time I seen something like this was probably around Black Panther. I don't necessarily want to be comparing the two but you have these like cultural moments where they're like bubbling up and then there's just amazing like media opportunity to really capitalize on it if you will and to just like galvanize an an entire group of people around one place and the thing about why Black Panther was so great or some of these Marvel movies is because not only uh you know one type of person can go by themselves like you're going with groups of friends you're wearing, remember, everyone was doing the Wakanda. We did this so much that people, like, Chadwick Boseman stopped doing it. He's like, guys, I got to stop doing this. 
<laughs> I can't be doing this in public anymore. Except, I mean, but everyone was wearing black. To the he, he knew he knew that Elon was going to change the company to X. <laughs> no, no, no. I love that. I love that. But for Barbie, the amount of people who were wearing pink, the amount of folks I talked to who were going in groups of like five to ten, and even uh, you know some of my friends who are who are women talked about there were conversations that needed to be had that you could only have with like your partner or what have you if they go to see the movie with you. Um, just things that were going on and just like rights for women. And I was just like, wow, like this is such mo so much bigger than what Barbie, you know, a plastic doll uh, in my head meant. So I thought that was cool that it was really about starting a conversation. It's really about getting people together. And I've heard that it was pretty, <clears throat> pretty diverse as well. So that was pretty cool to hear. Super, uh, super diverse. I, I, so I thought it was good, not great. I think most of, you know, my wife and her friends, most of them thought it was great. So I think if you liked Barbie growing up, I think obviously being a woman, like it had a bigger impact in the film. I thought from like a, I'm a massive content, like I take content a lot. Like I thought it was like an okay, like I wouldn't pay to see it again. It's probably not going to be nominated for, you know, an Oscar. But that was a good movie. There's probably only three movies to me that like, I saw to that point, like where the groups would go, people were dressed up and Black Panther was one of them. This one and then the last I would probably say is Harry Potter. Like those are three movies where like, I would say at least more than 50% of the audience was wearing something to represent the movie, which was not the case for Avengers or Spider-Man or other, you know, movies that I've seen. And so uh, that was really interesting. Um, you know, at least the theater I went to of the maybe 100 people there, like there was probably 10 guys. So definitely was like, more tailored towards women from that perspective but like to your point like they were going in groups of four five six and like it was a movement it felt like a girl strip to some extent i did wear pink it would felt cool to wear pink that awesome. day i'm glad you wear pink i mean you had to wear pink it's like it's part of the i felt like it was part of the experience um and i think the film now is gross 775 million dollars most ever by a woman director uh last tuesday was the highest grossing tuesday movie of all time the people are continuing to see it. It probably will cross a billion dollars. So I think a lot of like accomplishments, I think it hit a lot of topics. I think when I look at like Twitter and or X and people are going back and forth, the question now was like, was Barbie like the platform that should be able to have that conversation because of the history of Barbie? I think it's interesting that like Barbie is now what's leading those conversations about women's rights when a lot of people, you know, felt like it was uh, being skinnyism and, you know, the whole dr drama around the pregnant Barbie and you could like take it off and they got rid of the pregnant Barbie. So like stuff like that, it's interesting to think about like from a cultural, historical context perspective. I agree with the conversations that are having, but some people are kind of pushing back and saying like, was Barbie the right platform to have those conversations given what they represented for so long before? Wow. Yeah, I didn't hear that piece, but I just, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, yeah, I hadn't thought about it maybe not being the right property for it. I think it's just the fact that it did it on that property or just even like something that is a kid's toy in many ways and like was able to sort of transcend that and like kind of get into the broader consciousness. I think it's really fascinating. Um, I almost think it is the right toy for it or the right property for it because I think it, you need something that feels disarming and a little surprising to sort of be that wedge into some difficult and challenging conversations. Like I think that's why comedians are so good because they can kind of touch on something that feels like a pressure point, but they do it in a humorous way that like can disarm certain types of moments or conversations or like reflections on society. So in some ways, like it's like a little bit of a Trojan horse in some ways. And so I think, you know, is, is probably the right one. I'm also trying to think like, 
what would it have been if not Barbie? Um, Yo, you know, what I, I don't know. <laughs> what I do think is cool, though, is that it's opening up the door for like Mattel to do films across a whole bunch of properties. Like I saw something that like Barney and Polly Pocket and American Girl are all going to, you know, have their own movies. I mean, you know, they're going to do their spinoffs. Yeah, they're going to be like know, 10 spinoffs. Ken, off this. Ken on Ken on Ken. And Barbie verse. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. But I, I think it kind of speaks to like the crossover brand power that like things have. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see like a Beanie Babies movie at, at some point. Oh, Beanie Babies. Yeah. The, the only the only thing I would also add to that, I like the Trojan Horse perspective, but I also think it's it's just all around timing, right? Like, I don't think Black Panther would be as big if we didn't have our George Floyd moment, right? And I think it just happened to be within, you know, 24, you know, 12 to 24 months after we were just like, man, we finally get our big movie on did it a part of Disney, black director, blacks cast, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's more about timing at times and having something that's just a big enough platform. And then once someone starts to move it, who is like has a large enough following, a lot of people just follow along. And I think also last piece, having nostalgia connected to it. Like I don't remember black Panther, honestly, from when we were younger, but I mean, when no. I heard the history, <laughs> right. But when you hear the history of me, you're like, oh, wow. I didn't know we had black comic books <laughs> and, all, and let, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of people might not have known enough about Barbie, even though like some of my friends said that Barbie was the next coming of Legally Bond. And there was a lot of women who loved Legally Bond you know, 10, 15 years ago. And they thought that that was a groundbreaking movie for someone who looks a certain way to not necessarily just be like judge the, the books by its cover, but just judge someone by, you know, the intellect that's inside of their mind. So I think it's just uh, as sometimes just all about timing and, and things coming together at the right time. I think to that, to that timing point for the next topic, because context matters, right? I think we obviously have had a lot with women's rights this year in Supreme Court, uh, which kind of gets into the political side. And last week, the, you know, the big, X or memes were on Mitch McConnell breathing for, for 45 seconds, which led to a number of charts about how government is old. Obviously, we already we know the Biden jokes, him being 80. Now, apparently, 25% of Congress is 70 years old or older. I think we have a 90-plus-year-old in Congress or Senate as well. Um, and then Donald Trump, obviously, is older as well. So, you know, context matters. We're at a time now where it feels like, I think the average age of Americans is 36 or 35, I recently saw. Right. So who is representing us is two times as old as the average age of the population, which kind of begs the question around, is this a representative group, you know, of the country? So how do you guys think about that? You know, it, people have talked about it during the election cycle, but I think last week with Mitch McConnell, it led to a lot more conversations around age. And we've seen Joe Biden fall multiple times. Um, like, you know, what are your thoughts on kind of like, should there be age limits? What can we do to kind of correct it? Where, you know, should younger people be in government, et cetera? There's a lot here. I mean, I'll, I'll start to tick through age limits. Yes. Term limits as well. Yes. I don't think people should just be lifers from a political standpoint. I agree. And I think, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and I think if you have, yeah, <clears throat> I think if you have age limits, you have term limits, you have potential like opportunities around, um, you know, higher income, you can start to attract people from, tech from from banking from all these different uh works of life to come and like help fix our country i think there was i forgot who it was it was a politician one time that said that there should be in internships 
for people who work at tech or work at law firms or work at um, just like big companies to come intern at the government two, three, four years and bring all their just like brain power to the government. Because if you think about it over the last probably two or three decades, many people who might go into politics may not be, you know, the smartest people from Harvard. The smartest people from Harvard are trying to create the next Facebook, the next Twitter, the next et cetera. So I think we need to do something that makes it appealing for younger, innovative thinking folks to get into politics. If you think about the people who are in that category that get into politics now, it's after they've made a billion dollars and they already have their own, <laughs> they already have their own agendas of how they want to skew in and move things in their own in their own favor. So I do think that people like Mitch McConnell or even Nancy Pelosi, well too old to be making decisions for us who grew up with Facebook, who grew up, you know, having potentially iPhone for the last 10 plus years. These folks grew up where there was just, it was analog. So I just don't think writers don't necessarily understand exactly what we're going through. And oh, I forgot who's after Gen Z, but that. Gen Alpha. Yeah, Gen Alpha. Gen Alpha. That population is going to be probably <laughs> totally different. We don't need Gen X or baby boomers potentially telling Gen Alpha what to do. Totally. And I think some of the biggest and most pressing issues that we're dealing with around climate change, around how we use technology, how we build better cities, how do we like sort of to start to tackle, you know, student debt, the student debt crisis, the housing crisis, all of that. They're so far removed in their personal life experience, but also at how they are keeping in touch with like constituents who are going through that on a day-to-day basis. Like that gap just feels like it continues to get larger and larger. And so, you know, we have to, I think, agree, get more young people, more people who experience those challenges or just like care about those issues getting into politics. Um, you know, you see it in like the Senate hearings, like how, you know, they can't even don't even understand how to use TikTok or like how to use Facebook and like all of those things that feel so really real and relevant basic. to us today. And basic. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> how do you make money, Mr. Yeah, Zuckerberg? It's like, how do you, so how ads, can you sir. legislate? How can you really effectively govern if you don't understand what's going on? That's it. I do think we need age diversity in Congress. Like, I don't think it can all just be this younger cohort, but I think at some point, Particularly, you know, if you're like a Diane Feinstein or someone who reports are coming out, it's clear that you're not doing the job. I think at that point, you've got to, you know, counsel people out and start bringing in, you know, fresher folks. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, that like we saw that one trend line that was floating around Twitter that it's really in the last 20 years, like the percentage of people over 70 in Congress has skyrocketed. And so one thing I was wondering is if Citizens United, right, the new law that lets corporations spend unlimited funding on elections, if that's starting to contribute to more and more people staying in Congress longer and longer um, as they get older, just because it's easier to perhaps fund those incumbents than like the next new upstart person. Um, so just like trying to layer on like how we got here, but like also solutions to getting out of it in some ways. Yeah, I really dislike the unlimited terms for Supreme Court. I think in the beginning, I could see why people thought that, right? Because if you do that, then you live through the life cycle of multiple presidents and you're supposed to be unpolitical and you should make laws that will last your lifetime. I think it's very clear the Supreme Court is politicized and majority of votes are going to be split 6-3, right? And I think there has to be, you know, I, I don't know what that term is, like probably more than two terms, eight years, so you could at least go longer than the existing president. So maybe it's 12 or 16 years, but I don't think you should last more than two present terms and you get to this point, you know, RIP, RBG, 
like, well, you shouldn't be dying, you know, at that age at the Supreme Court. And so I think similarly to Congress, like you shouldn't have people making laws when you've got 10 to 15 years of life left and you're making laws for generations to come. Like you, there, there's no way to me that you could be incentivized, one, understand and empathize with the, the existing American citizen, but you're probably going to be biased in terms of like what laws you create on a go forward basis. And that's going to have a huge impact, you know, on future generations and has nothing to do with you, right? Maybe if you have grandkids or children, you can say, oh, like I understand my grandkids or children, but I think that's really hard, especially when I've been in power for so long. I think that's to me what people miss is like when you've been in power for decades, it like you're just living a completely different life, right? It's why like it's why we have presidential terms. Like you, you can't be president forever. Uh, this is not a authoritarian country. And so I don't understand why the Supreme Court, which is arguably more powerful than the president, you know, we are kind of giving authoritarian rights to. Wow. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Power, power yeah. is an addictive drug. I, I've been reading a lot of books where it's like, as soon as you get too much power, you use it in a bad way because you have the optionality to do it. Like that's literally like the, the definition of having too much power means that you will actually use it. Your, down, your, your downside gets increased, right? <laughs> like you, you get less and less downside, the more and more power you have. Like you don't think about it. You start doing yeah. crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe this. So tough, maybe kind of taking from Brandon's uh, point on the last one. I guess what's the prediction around sort of Ooh. what goes, what what terms. ends up happening around Congress and Supreme Court around terms? <laughs> uh, yeah. Do we think that like when will when I mean, will we have our nothing, first like nothing will happen? <laughs> well, like, I was going to say that until That's they, until they die. Like why why would they be incentivized to vote against themselves? But I guess, do you think they'll all run again? Maybe that's the maybe that's the question. I don't, yeah, I, I I don't see why not. I mean, so it's interesting, right? Because you've got twenty five percent or above seventy. But I saw a recent stat also. It's the highest percentage of first time Congress members also. So I think you've kind of got this split, right? So there has been there has like the the last two cycles. There's been a lot of new people. You got the youngest people ever, 24, 25, whatever age they are in Congress. So you do have a split. And part of that is why people were scared about the debt ceiling, because you have a lot of Congress who have never gone through, you know, this process before. And so, you know, I think because of that split, like maybe there is more likely now that I think about it, but I don't see why the older folks would would change this. And I don't like to me, the Supreme Court is honestly more important than, than Congress. And I just don't see what like would change the Supreme Court. Like obviously they would have to like make that change themselves. <laughs> and they're you know, I don't I don't see that happening. Or put yourself out of the job. Yeah. To your point on incentives. I feel like maybe not this presidential election cycle, but the next at some point, like that's when we'll finally get the new full crop of like candidates uh from that lens. And then depending on whatever Congress shakes out to be, maybe then we'll be able to start to change um what looks the Supreme Court starts to look like. Yeah, I'll give it at least one to two election cycles before something happens. Or I think uh, another prediction, I do see that there's a lot of politicians that will be running for president coming up, but I I want to think that there might be a few black horses that are not political. That might be business folks, tech folks, et cetera, that could sneak in and win the election. And I... um would love to see like a PowerPoint presentation from a president or something like that. <laughs> like I would love to see someone walk through slides. Just give me your yeah, voice. No, send us your, send us your pitch deck. Point. <laughs> pitch decks for president. Right. Like here's where we're going. Here's where we're going to be. 
here's my long-term, this is a product roadmap for the government. Could you imagine if you heard that? I would actually be high. <laughs> product roadmap for the government. Here's where we could be in a few years. Here's how we're going to make money. Here's how we're going to cut expenses and scale efficient. Yeah. If someone were to say those things, hey. May have your vote. Okay, great. All right, so maybe Elon, uh, or maybe uh, someone will come in with oh. like, I don't think we should. I'm think. Thank God he's South African. Good point. Actually, good point. <laughs> yeah, good he point. Wasn't born here. Like someone will create like a community adjusted EBITDA for like the you know U.S. government. You know. <laughs> to the uh, Supreme Court point, so I mean, I think it was two episodes ago we had the affirmative action ruling. Since then, uh, the big New York Times article came out, which was showing that for the ultra rich. Uh, whether you're legacy affluent or an athlete, there's kind of like a one and a half to three times more likely you'll get into an Ivy League school. Uh, a lot of conversations around it, all in podcasts. Um, the Daily had a great episode on it last week as well. I think it, you know it, it kind of was inevitable to come to the next point from like, hey, we're talking about race. Okay, now what else like leads to that, which is sports, legacy, and money, uh, which I. You know, we kind of talked about this last time, but like that's to me, a huge, like 15% of Harvard Business School students went to Harvard undergrad, right? I don't know what percent are legacy um, students or parents, but like, how do you guys think about that? Obviously, the firm action piece, we talked about how sad we were and angry we were. And now it's kind of more information coming out about other, you know, biases in the system. And almost feels like, you know, we chose race and we were out there black Latinos first. Uh, and now all the other stuff is coming out, which benefits more typically white affluent people. Like, how are you guys thinking about that? I think the article was like really fascinating. It had I think a half a million students attract over you know a number of years. Yeah, and I I mean it's like you done it's something you expected though, right? Like we, we all, I mean that. everybody knew like, it. Like to me, to me Football. it was like oh, a oh, water is wet. Like we already knew this, right? <laughs> like it's it's not surprising. And I think in all cases, it, it all just like goes back to money, right? Like if you're an athlete, chances are that you might go pro or do something exceptional, be able to donate back gets uh, other alumni excited to donate. If you're a legacy, you're likely to have families already donating or has donated and you're more likely to donate in the future. And then if you're ultra rich, like, you know, you can pay your full weight and like don't need financial aid. And so I think it's really a function in many ways of just like the university system where it's self-funded, they tend to be nonprofit. They need some, you know, form of income and revenue. And like, that's where they're getting it. And that's the bread and butter. And it's going to be the last place that they start to cut and and try to make changes. I think there's been some schools who are starting to go after legacies, but like I'd be shocked if like a Harvard, the Yale, the Ivies start to do that because that's so much of you know who they're serving and who they're coming from. And yeah, I think about it in like three ways. You have like people who love to invest in incentives, which is what Gabby was bringing up. Like, what is our incentive to have these people in our college? What can they do with us? What's what's the ROI in the future? And then um, you want to have people who make you look good. <laughs> so like, who's going to make us look good? What, what companies are they going to start in the future? What, what companies are they going to work at? What things are they going to solve? What articles are they going to write, et cetera. And then I think like the, the last thing is like, who are people that we know? Like what's the pattern match that has worked in the past that we know is going to have the lowest downside for us in the future. And if you do those three things over and over and over and over again, and it almost turns into something like tech where like, you know, 80% of people who are founders might be white in tech. And you just wonder why, because everyone's just investing in people that they are comfortable with, incentivized, went to this school, et cetera, pattern matching. 
So I do think, I hope that some schools can keep some of the focus around, you know, diverse people and, and prioritizing those folks in the future. But if anything, we know, like the education system doesn't care, right? They've doubled or tripled their revenue over the last kind of like few decades. They, for example, Ohio State went from, you have to be on campus for one year, you now have to be on campus for two years, and they've doubled campus since I've left in 2013. <laughs> and I'm just like, how does that even happen? Like, what, what's what's going on? So I don't, I don't see education slowing down. The only way it could slow down is if more people became entrepreneurs, more people became content creators, more people started having side hustles, or potentially if more people just were unemployed and getting, getting unemployment checks. So I, there's, there's a few other options. Yeah, I thought the, the daily episode, which I encourage people to listen to, was super fascinating. That was probably more on your guy's side. I think after listening to it, they had some interesting perspectives. So I think one, starting with sports and as an athlete. So if you kind of look at like grades and everything and people are comparable and an athlete gets in, like I'm not actually opposed to that because I do think being an athlete, if you're doing three hours of practice and you have games and you're getting the same GPA, you probably are better well, well-rounded. You probably are more of a team player. And I know our benefits to be an athlete, so I wouldn't push down on that piece. I also think like, for schools, like I actually chose Northwestern over like NYU or other schools because they did have sports and not because I played them in college, because I actually wanted that experience. Like I wanted a Big Ten experience. I wanted to go to tailgate. And schools like Alabama and Georgia like wouldn't exist really without their football programs. Like they would just not be the same level. And so I, I think like those are critical to the student experience. I think from a legacy perspective, which was really interesting the way they spoke about it, everything in life is very legacy driven. Right. So I think about myself as a Haitian, like a lot of Haitians are doctors because their parents and grandparents were doctors. You think about unions, you think about, you know, people owning their family businesses, whatever it may be. There's a number of things where it actually is really important and people get into those things because their parents did it. Right. And same similar for sports too, whether it's, you know, Curry or LeBron's son, like there's no doubt that their parents being basketball players impacted them wanting to be basketball players. Right. And so I think it's interesting that for us to think that like education is different if your parent went to Duke. In your whole life, you grew up and you went to homecoming to Duke and you saw your parents that like you wouldn't have an extra incentive to want to be at that school. And the way the NPR talked about it or the Daily talked about it was you are more likely to want to give back to that school long term because it's been in your life for so long. No different than if your parent was in a union or worked at a company, you know, Microsoft, whatever, for a long time. And so I don't like, you know, I actually have never thought about that. And I was like, actually, it's not a negative. And if we're allowing legacy everywhere else in life, are you going to remove legacy from the rest of life? And why is education unique? I think to the second point, particularly for minorities, which they brought up was, you know, minorities were let into these schools in the 1960s. We've been in these schools for 60 years. This for, you know, for me, my parents went to Harvard Medical School in 1980 and I went to Harvard Business School, you know, five years ago. Like I'm, I'm the first generation that couldn't be legacy. And now that people of color are finally getting legacy, now you're going to remove the legacy. So, I mean, there's also like a, a racial lens there where it's like you're removing it once people of color have actually gotten the first opportunity to even have the benefit of having legacy. So I it was just really interesting because I think it's really, it seems black and white and it could be like, oh, legacy is bad and sports is bad. But I think at a deeper level, the way they present it was super fascinating and it made me reflect and think, yeah, like, I do want my kids to, uh, you know, have a better chance at Western Harbor. And if I, you know, took them to campus and I've been donating and people have been doing this for 40 years, like, why do I not get that benefit? Right. And so I thought it was interesting to think about, um, but I'm curious, like your guys thoughts if you didn't listen to the podcast. Yeah, I didn't listen um, to the podcast. So I'm curious to go hear it. I guess my 
overarching issue is that like we paint like we we've painted education and like access to these institutions as a blanket meritocracy and i think it's that like in reality they never were meritocracies and so i think it's that like disconnect that gets to me even more like sure it's been part of someone's family history for a while but that still doesn't make that candidate or applicant that much better than somebody else even with that familial tie in history and so i think it's like if you were upfront about it and if all these schools were upfront about it i think that's one thing but when you paint everything as fair equal equitable but then you clearly behind the scenes are pulling levers to make it not i think to me it just like makes the argument a bit of a wash because then it's like yeah, just makes it a, a bit of a wash. So, so if they said it wasn't fair, you'd be fine. Well, <laughs> it isn't fair, right? But we pretend that it is. But not, but nothing in Latin nothing's, America. Nothing's is. fair. So, I mean, if you acknowledge the system's rigged, and then everyone tries to find their way around it, like you know, then it's just figuring out what part of that system can I get through. But I don't know. I, I just still, I think fundamentally believe that like an equal, equitable access to education is still you know one of the best things that like America could be offering. It's just not living up to that particular promise in this way. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It's almost like people are going to self-select where they want to go, especially if there's some legacy perspective there. Like I remember when I was like recruiting for Goldman, like if you want to recruit and go to Goldman, Goldman has like three times less the workers than every other place. And there's a reason why, because they, everyone is like getting grinded so hard at Goldman. And to your point in GC, like Goldman actually says, we only take the best. So you want Harvard to say that, I guess. <laughs> we only take the best. And we are pulling strings behind the scenes. Like you actually knew that going into Goldman and even some other um, banking internships, you just knew people were pulling strings. You knew someone's, someone was someone's child. Someone knew this person, someone who got this introduction, et cetera, et cetera. Someone was recommended by this MD. And I was just like kind of a part of life. And so I agree with Henri. It's just like this stuff happens all the time. And we were lucky to have this um, legislation that helped us out. I think, I would do whatever I could to like keep it for my children in the future though. You know what I'm saying? Like might as well make sure that we can have a few generations that can have the the same things that we've. Yeah. I think it's, I, I hear Gabby on the point. I, I guess like I've also never believed meritocracy existed in this country in any aspect of my life. And so I think I never, I never viewed education and being at a private school. Like I saw, you know, we were taking our PSATs in middle school and, I saw the tutor. I like. I knew we were getting benefits, and so I think the question just becomes like, what is education meant for? And interestingly enough, they did a study on who benefits the most from uh, schools, and lower income people of color do right. If you think about how, like, what your income goes enters versus where it goes to, the highest ROI for college is lower income minorities. Like, it, it can literally change your life and change for generations versus if you allow in. And after, you know, white person, then that's not going to change as much. And so, you know, I think the question just becomes like, what, like, what do we use education for? I think what will change is you're going to see more trade schools, more coding schools, and more people kind of tailoring to different needs. You know, to Gabby's point, I think the IVs are probably the most like embedded and have very little incentive. I think also on the lower, you know, on the other side, you've got the sports schools. Like, I don't care what sports uh, stuff comes up. Alabama is <laughs> going to be recruiting for football players, no matter what your legislation says. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And so in a similar for Harvard, they're going to recruit the wealthiest families in the world, regardless of what your, you know, whatever your legislation says. So you can't stop that because they're businesses. And, you know, I think these are businesses first. And like, and I think it's different also for public schools. And to the point, schools don't have to abide by public law unless they take public funding. 
Now, most schools like Harvard and others do take public funding. Now the question becomes like, hey, I have a 30 plus billion dollar endowment. Do I just like start to like use my endowment instead of building it so I don't take public funding? I don't have to listen to whatever the Supreme Court decides. That will probably become more, um, you know, happening more for schools. Public schools, you can't change anything. True. I don't know. That's a good prediction or an interesting prediction. I don't know about the endowment piece. I I imagine they'll first try whatever loopholes they can first. Like I remember the Harvard admissions like Twitter page right after the ruling was like, uh, you can still talk about your identity in your essay, effectively saying like, do whatever you want in the essay. We can't use anything else. But tell us who exactly, you are. But tell us who you are so that we can craft okay. the you know most diverse class that we can. Um, so I imagine they would do that before they try to tap the endowment. Uh, but if schools start to go that route, I mean, then it, again, it still only benefits, you know, the ones who have that large endowment and then they can continue sort of creating, continuing to perpetuate to your point, like the benefit of patent matching and legacies over time. Um, but yeah. The funny question became what happened to HBCUs? Luna. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, so Ooh. now do I, like, do I, can I not be biased towards historically black? Like, it just, oh. it's just such a fascinating. That is interesting. So many more diverse you can't people. Use race. Even at a black school. Yeah, but maybe that goes back to Brandon's point around self-selection. You know, around who's, who's self-selected. People are going to self-select regardless, yeah. but there's going to be certain people who want to like break the barrier, and those people who want to break the barrier are going to be the people who are like doing class action lawsuits at <laughs> <on the> universities. <laughs> yeah, but my hard take here, or like just like really interesting take, is that. I almost feel like education is similar to banking. Like you'll get to this point where there might be some consolidation. Some schools might close and you'll have these universities that are like too big to fail. And then they turn into like banks or pharmaceutical companies where they have just the tens of thousands of lawyers who go and lobby and make sure that nothing happens to their industry. I think that's where it's going to go. So they might use that endowment money just to make sure that they are lobbying so that no more of these interesting things happen and they predict their own <laughs> their their, li- their right, line well, of defense w- water is wet and <laughs> we gotta get back to work <laughs> <laughs> bye bro thanks everybody <laughs>